We know Georgia politics from Peachtree Street to Pennsylvania Avenue. Politically Georgia podcast delivers exclusive news and analysis five days a week by a team of veteran political insiders watching your public officials. Hosted by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Greg Bluestein, Bill Nygut, Tia Mitchell, and Patricia Murphy. Listen weekdays at 10 a.m. on WABE 90.1. Stream everywhere or at AJC.com forward slash podcasts. News and analysis five days a week from Politically Georgia podcast. Whether you're buying a new car, a used car, or refinancing your current car, FedChoice Federal Credit Union could help save you money. FedChoice makes buying a car so easy that you can do everything right from your smartphone or on a computer. Become a member today and you can take advantage of their great rates and financing options. Find out more at FedChoice.org. That's FedChoice.org. Membership open to federal employees including contractors and their families. FedChoice Federal Credit Union insured by NCUA. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the hill. We welcome you back in here from Washington, D.C. Our guest this time, Congressman Jamie Raskin. He is a Democrat from Maryland who represents the 8th Congressional District. He is a member of the House Judiciary Committee and a member of House Leadership as well. And uh, Congressman Raskin. We appreciate you coming us and joining us on the Hill. Tom, I'm so delighted to be with you. It's good to have a conversation with you because, you know, often when we're in the middle of covering these stories, it's, you know, very rushed and, and, and frenetic. Um, I'm going to inverse what we talked about on the television program Great. to start uh, with impeachment. Now, we are recording this just days after. Robert Mueller came out and gave his statement. You know, they call it a press. I don't call it a press conference if the press can't answer questions. So it was a statement. But what he said um, really has a lot of people wondering what his goal was. You're a member of Congress. You know the law. You're a constitutional law professor. And Mueller laid out why he could not charge Donald Trump with a crime. Yes. So when you heard that, what did what did you hear? Well, I, I think you zeroed in on it. Um, he really kind of stuck it to Attorney General Barr. What he was saying was, look, don't go around saying this no obstruction, no collusion thing. Page two of the report says we don't deal with collusion. That's not a legal concept. And on the obstruction, we outlined 11 different episodes of presidential obstruction of justice. The reason we didn't indict the president was because of the Department of Justice policy set forth by OLC, which is you don't indict a sitting president. And he said that that was rooted in the Constitution. I don't know if that's true or not, but in any event, that is DOJ policy. Mm -hmm. And so he said that was the reason why. It had nothing to do with the evidence. Here's the evidence. Now it's up to Congress to act. So he threw this big pile of obstruction of justice mm -hmm. evidence onto our lap. Explain this to me, though, because as a kid, as a kid, I can sit here and remember the day that Gerald Ford took office and he was standing in the East Room of the White House and he said two things that have stuck in my head since that day, that our long national nightmare was over and that we are a nation of laws, not of men. Yes. Well, if we're a nation of laws, why can't a president be charged? Well, the... I'm a thousand percent with you. That started as uh, an Office of Legal Counsel opinion that somebody did from one president and the next president said, oh, that president said it. We'll say it, too. And then pretty, uh, you know, pretty soon over time, it just becomes part of the law, which is ridiculous. So the Supreme Court has never found the president. Is that how laws are made, though? It's no, it's, of legal counsel it's not. I mean, this is a Washington thing. Yeah. You know, most people out there in the country would say, 
wait a second. Why can't if the president, you know, take the president's hypothetical, if he shot somebody on Fifth Avenue in New York and everybody saw it, are you telling me he can't be indicted for that? While he's in office, well, that doesn't he said make he could sense. be elected president, which he was. Well, that's so. a different question. <laughs> a different question of whether or not people are going to follow him anyway. But certainly you could be indicted for it. So I don't accept that. But in any event, the, Mueller says, look, Barr, I'm going to follow your rule. That's what Barr is saying. Barr even goes one step further. Barr says not only is the president not indictable while he's in office, he says the president of the United States can never be charged with obstructing justice, even after he leaves office or even by Congress. Why? He says because the president is in charge of law enforcement mm -hmm. and because he sits on top of the prosecutors, he can just fire them instead. And so he can't obstruct justice. Now, that got special counsel Mueller, you know, who is a decorated uh, military veteran and a man of law and a very up right guy with a lot of rectitude it got him mad and he answered that both in the report and also in that press conference he said nobody's above the law here and that's what this whole thing is about you know is the president above the law or not this is a quote from Mueller's statement the constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing is robert Mueller, congressman calling on you in the congress to begin impeachment. I think that's the subtext of it. You know, he didn't say it explicitly, but everything that you find in that report is all about that. He, you know, if you read the last three or four pages of the report, which I found rather uplifting and soaring, he basically said, nobody's above the law, but this is no longer in the court of the Department of Justice, meaning in his court or the court of Attorney General Barr. He says, this goes to the House of Representatives now. And my whole point is, uh, you know, when the media frames it like impeach or not impeach, I say it's the wrong question. Mm -hmm. We need to have an investigation, an inquiry as to what to do. Most impeachment inquiries have not led to articles of impeachment being drawn up, have not led to indictments. Now, on the television program, I had said that you had called for impeachment and you corrected me and you said you called for an impeachment inquiry. We, well, we've had an investigation going on for months now. What would another investigation another inquiry produced well there's two problems one is it has not been formalized and it's not been structured around particular high crimes and misdemeanors which is what the constitution calls for it talks about treason bribery and other high crimes and misdemeanors mm -hmm. president clinton was impeached for obstructing justice when he lied about sex there were impeachment articles drawn up against richard nixon abuse of power obstruction of justice uh and contempt of congress so that's one problem the other problem is that the administration under president trump has been stonewalling us tom the president trump i think uh, three or four weeks ago now mm -hmm. said we're not going to cooperate with anything no subpoenas no witnesses no documents we're not sending anybody over we're not cooperating with any investigation so in the same time he's saying to pelosi and schumer in the white house no we're not doing anything on infrastructure or any other issue so He's not cooperating with investigations and he's not cooperating on any public policy. So we're at this situation right now where there are about 44 members of Congress, one Republican, who are saying we need to proceed on impeachment. That's only about 10 percent of Congress. So there's a lot more that are not on board with this just yet. Is there value? Because Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, correctly states that with the Senate in Republican hands, there is very little chance that the Republican-controlled Senate would hold a trial or even convict this president. Based so it would be like Clinton, seen. where the House impeached and so the Senate So is there value didn't. in that in merely the House passing an article of impeachment? And then you could then say, this is a president who has been impeached. 
even though there would be no resolution to this in a Republican-controlled well, Senate? Well, I think you asked the critical question, but we don't know because we're not there yet, you know? And uh, as you know, with all trials and all investigations, these are a moving target because evidence comes out, right? Uh, Mueller wrote about President Trump ordering Don McGahn, the White House counsel, to go out and fire the special counsel to break up the investigation and then basically to render dishonest testimony to say the reason for that was because there was a conflict of interest. And so there's episode after episode like that. I mean, imagine if, you know, Bill Clinton had said, we're going to fire Ken Starr and we're going to sack his whole team. We're going to say he had a conflict of interest. And so that's what we're talking about. Is here. it frustrating you at all, though, that, you know, despite and granted, Robert Mueller has an impeccable reputation in a, a, a lot of circles, but the vagueness by which he said some of these things the other day, why not just say it? Well, he, he seemed to dance around it. In fairness, in fairness to Mueller, who, of course, is a lifelong Republican and everything, he, what he did was he laid out the factual evidence. He said, here's what happened on this date, and here's what happened on that day, and here was an attempt to interfere with the investigators, here's an attempt to interfere with the prosecutors, and he said, but it is not my job to determine whether or not there was obstruction of justice, I turn it over to the House of Representatives. And that's what Attorney General Barr, this is what I hold against him. He intercepted the pass, basically. He distorted the findings, and that caused Mueller to write two letters of protest. It's pretty to clear there's a rift between these two. Big time, yeah. yeah. Um, Mueller working, it seems, to preserve his position as a neutral arbitrator of this as well. Could that be behind maybe him not saying this happened, that happened, this is what I think you should do. I mean, he fo Mueller followed what Ken Starr did. Ken Starr never said Bill Clinton obstructed justice. He said, here's the evidence. Here's what he did. Then here's what he said. I'm turning it over to Congress. You guys do it. You know, the House of Representatives impeached Bill Clinton for that lie, which was a lie, and for obstructing justice without any other testimony or witnesses. Now, we've been trying to get witnesses, and the White House has been blockading our ability to get these witnesses to come in. But they actually voted articles of impeachment against Bill Clinton with no further witnesses. It was just the report. I want to move on to a couple other things, because uh, besides impeachment, there is the business of the Congress. What we got elected to, to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I've kind of found, you know, in the last 10 years, if I had to pick one issue that was the great common denominator between conservatives, liberals, Democrats, Republicans, independents, libertarians, whatever, it's that everybody gets sick. Yeah. Everybody needs health. It's our common humanity. Sick. Yeah. And I, I'm speaking I, to somebody who was a cancer. I'm a cancer yeah, survivor. Yeah. So. I feel this strongly. So, so does that inform you, your own experience when you deal with something 100%, like this? percent, because yeah. it can happen to anybody. You know, it, it taught me the difference between misfortune and injustice. If you, you're given, you know, a diagnosis of stage three colon cancer and your life was going great and your job you love and constituents you love and everything, and then you're told you got a 50-50 chance of dying, like that can happen to anybody. It's a misfortune. But if you can't get health insurance, if we've set things up so in the richest country on earth you can't get the proper medical attention, that's not just a misfortune, that's an injustice. We can do something about that. So we're at a period in time right now where we have heard the president express support for the idea of lowering prescription costs. Mm. Where are we at with this? Because you know, I'll give you a personal example of someone with a child with a food allergy who has to carry an EpiPen. Oh, yes. And the cost of that particular 
medication and granted very fortunate to be able to you know to afford that but i think about sometimes the people who can't and you know something like that mm. a cancer medication maybe you have some other kind of debilitating illness the prices of these medications seem wildly out of whack the epipen is they a, actually cost to <clears throat> produce yes well the epipen is a great example because yeah. that one was jacked up by thousands of percent yeah. just because they could because they knew they had a captive audience and what are you going to do not buy the epipen for your kid you're right. going to buy the epipen for your kid so, you know sorry right. junior no right. no epipen yeah so yeah. so um there's several things that we really can do about it. And we passed some good legislation out of the House of Representatives to say, first of all, the manufacturers can't be charging double or three times here in America what they're charging in the UK, in France, in Canada, in Japan, in Germany. We're saying, let's tie it to what they're charging abroad. They're charging us more for it. That's number one. Number two is... Um, in the Medicare program, there's this ridiculous special interest provision in there which says that the Medicare program can't lobby uh, or, or can't negotiate for lower drug prices um, with, the, with the manufacturers. But in Medicaid, we can negotiate for lower drug prices. In the VA, we can do it. But somebody just stuck that in. A lobbyist got to it, stuck it in. Well, we should get rid of that provision and say, let's negotiate. We'll save people tens of billions of dollars a year. You know, And there's another provision that we passed, which says, let's not allow the brand name drug manufacturers to pay off the generic drug manufacturers not to produce competitive drugs. That's what they're doing now. It's called pay to delay. Rather than coming into the market and making all the prices go down, they say, oh, well, we'll pay you a few billion dollars here. You don't have to do anything. And then uh, the the consumers don't benefit. So there's a lot of manip 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 uh, sorry manipulation going on, and we've got to get on top of that. I was in the room 10 years ago at the East, at the East Room when President Obama signed the Affordable Health Care Act. Yeah. And you know, when the name Obamacare got slapped on it, uh, Republicans kind of took that as a, 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 a flag to wave around and rail against Obamacare and rail against Obamacare. Now, two years past the Obama administration, it is talked about more commonly in terms of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, obviously, Republicans have been saying for 10 years they wanted to repeal and replace. And. Do you know, as you sit here right now, what they want to replace it with? No, I don't think that anything's really on the table. The good news is that our Republican friends now are saying they're for the part of Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, which protects people against being thrown off of their plans because they have a pre-existing condition. Mm -hmm. That was not their position before. Now it is their position because I think we've established in our country that, look, if you've got a pre-existing condition, that's not a reason to get rid of your health insurance. That's the reason you need your health insurance. Mm -hmm. We've got to cover people. Is in, it's To switch this to political discussion for a moment, was that one of the big lessons out of the midterms this year? Was oh, that, I think that, it was. The Affordable Care Act is actually very popular with the voters. We got nine and a half million more votes than the Republicans did. And I think a lot of it was because of health care, because we've stood strong for pre-existing condition coverage. And we've said we want to make sure that every American gets covered. I think that, you know, like with Social Security and Medicare, our GOP friends across the aisle are moving in our direction on that mm -hmm. as they see that it's a real problem. I mean, people's kids get back from school, whatever, they're 22, 23 years old. They should be able to stay on the family plan, that that's how we're doing it. But ultimately, I don't think that health insurance should be tied to people's work. 
You know, I, I think that it should be an attribute of citizenship. I mean, that was just, uh, you, you know, I learned how this happened, Tom. It was during World War II where there was wage and price controls. And so employers were competing to get people to go work for them. And the way they did it was they said, well, we'll give you health insurance because that was exempted out. And so that was how health insurance started being tied. Other countries to don't do it jobs. like this. No. Yeah. And it doesn't make sense for all my small business constituents. Like it's like they're the healthcare business. Like yeah. they've got to figure out which insurance plan works for the employees and works for them. Why should that be their responsibility? Let's make it a social responsibility and let the businesses do what they do best. Let them go and run their restaurant or their tennis club or whatever it is. Let's talk about voting rights because <clears throat> obviously one of the lessons, not only of this midterms when you look at what happened in the South with um, the, the elections down there, but also gerrymandering in those cases. We sit here right now, we are awaiting a ruling from the United States Supreme Court yes. on uh, gerrymandering. One of them involves Maryland's seventh uh, congressional district, which for years was... Um, I think it's a six you're talking six, about. Six, I'm sorry, yeah, six. Yeah. Uh, uh, and um, Roscoe Bartlett was the congressman there for years. Yes. Uh, the district was redistrict, and then former congressman John Delaney, a uh, Democrat, was elected to that seat. But it was elected to that seat in large part because the demographics of that district was changed. And it was changed, you know, based upon the idea from Democrats who were controlling the state of Maryland at the time, to make that a, a Democrat. Well, make it more competitive. I think he won by one or two yeah. percent. In the next election, he barely yeah. won. I think it was just with the uh, the absentee ballots. There are examples, if you look into the South, of gerrymandered districts that were crafted in bizarre ways Yes. to ensure that Republicans hold, hold on. I mean, Ohio is actually a great example yeah. where you basically have a 50-50 state, but the congressional delegation is three to one Republican mm -hmm. because they've done such a masterful job drawing the district lines. So... H.R. 1, aptly named because it was the first bill uh, of this new Democratic majority in, in uh, this 116th Congress. What will it do as far as not only addressing voting rights in this country, but finally addressing the issue of gerrymandering, which, um, you know, uh, the, the, I believe the, uh, the, the district that it's named after goes back to Massachusetts back like at the turn 18, of the last 12. century. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Well, <clears throat> which tells look, you how long it's been going on. It's been going on from the beginning yeah. of the republic. It's just gotten much worse because of the computers. The computers allowed the politicians, <clears throat> excuse me, the computers allowed the politicians to sort voters down by the block and by the house. Yeah. You know, it's gotten uh, so expert. Um, and, and the computers really force us to ask the question, do we want politicians choosing voters or do we want voters choosing politicians? And in a lot of states, it benefits the Republicans, like in Ohio and Virginia and North Carolina. Uh, and in some states, it benefits Maryland. Uh, in Maryland, it benefits the Democrats. And, and I, I'm very honest about that. This is one of the states where the Democrats are gaining because of gerrymandering. But it's not fair anywhere. And so what we want is a system that uh, allows the voters to be fairly represented. If you're getting 40% of the vote in your state, you should end up with around 40% of the seats, not 0% of the seats. And that's what's happening all over the country. So what we passed in HR1 was uh, a law which says, let's take it out of the hands of the politicians. We'll have independent redistricting panels in every state in the country. I was very proud that the Democrats got behind that, even though it's going to you know, hurt some Democrats in some places. And I hope that the Republicans in the Senate will take it up so we can move to independent redistricting across the country. Is there an appetite for this on the other side? Because 
you know, entrenched politics likes to remain entrenched. Well, that's the whole thing. Like everybody hates gerrymandering when it hurts them. The question is, can you can you oppose gerrymandering even when it helps you? You know, can you can we move? Can we have a big jump forward across the country? That's what we're looking for. So, you know, I'm not interested in denouncing my friends, uh, but, the, you know, the, the GOP is in control of more state legislatures. So they're able to profit more from it than we are. But I think all of us need to jump together and say, let's move to a different era. Of one, one of the things that's not talked about as much in HR one is the issue of foreign money coming into our elections. Yes. Um, if you watch the end of Robert Mueller's statement last week, it was very clear, you know, what he was saying was, listen, America, wake up. There are countries around the world that are trying and are in the process of interfering in our elections. Yes. Now, there are certain ways they can do that. They can hack email accounts. They can create phony Facebook. They can put up memes, all kinds of things. One of the ways governments do that is by getting foreign money into these elections. You got too. it. You got so it. how do we track that? How do we stop that? Well, and- Or should we stop Just that? to underscore your point, Tom, you know, Vladimir Putin wakes up, he can't beat America militarily, he can't beat America economically, he can't beat America in terms of industry, but what has he got? The internet. And we they can use the internet first to put propaganda into our political system. Look how divided and polarized we are in America right now. A lot of that was created by the Russians coming in and said, saying, let's create websites that drive people apart along racial lines, ethnic lines. I'm not saying it was perfect before that. There were obviously mm. pre-existing tensions, but they threw gasoline on the fire. What happened in Charlottesville was an obscenity. That was a disgrace to America. How did we get to that point? You know, so I, I think that um, we've got to be much clearer that that, as the Mueller report said, that there is a sweeping systematic campaign against our politics and there is foreign money pouring in because of the Citizens United decision, which says corporations can spend what they want. So the way you get the foreign money in is you take over a corporation and then you just pour it in. One of the ways we get out of all of this uh, eventually, hopefully, is that we have a uh, generation of Americans coming up behind us uh, who are young and who are engaged and who are intelligent about um, not only civics, but... Um, the responsibility we kind of share as Americans and why we're different and why the world looks to us and wants to come here. Um, you're involved in something called Democracy Summer. Yes. Um, it involves youth politics. And as we sit here at the beginning of what's about to be the summer season for a lot of uh, students, uh, talk to me about that. And, you know, you're, you're, you're a professor as well, too. So you probably uniquely qualified to kind of, you know, uh, bridge that gap. Where are young people right now when it comes to our politics and how does something like democracy? Well, I mean, this is my that? first passion, which yeah. is transmitting the values of the past, our constitution, our bill of rights to young people. And uh, in Democracy Summer, we take high school kids, we take college kids and we teach them about uh, social change in the past, how America has gotten to where we are. You know, how did we start as a kind of closed slave republic and become a real democracy where everybody's invited and everybody participates? And then what are the skills of politics and what are the arts of politics you need to learn to go be out there? And Millennials engage? and young people get a bad rap, I think. Yes. A lot um, for spending too much time on their phones and not being engaged. I see the opposite. I meet a lot of young people who know a lot about what's going on, maybe more so than their adult counterparts. Yes. Is, is that what you see? Well, you know, seven or 800,000 of them came to march about the problem of gun violence. Yeah. And what are we doing about to hold both parties 
to account? What are we really doing to stop the problem of gun violence, which we just saw flare up again in Virginia Beach with 11 people dead? And why should they have to go to school? Under the truancy laws, they've got to be in school, but then they're not safe there. So what are we doing as a society to keep them safe? Climate change is something very much on their mind. They're paying really close attention to what's going on in the environment. These you know crazy tornadoes and the forest fires out of control in the West and the flooding and the drought and so on. What are we doing about that? So I, I think that the young people have woken up in America and are really demanding answers from us. How has being a, a law professor maybe altered or informed your career in politics? Well, you know, what I love about being a law professor is that it's different from just being a partisan, like you're on one partisan team or another. Of course, the Constitution was written. It didn't mention political parties, and it tried to hold us to... Uh, you know, higher standards. So I, I think in some way, the highest compliment I ever get by my colleagues in Congress is when they call me Professor Raskin <laughs> instead of Congressman, you know, because I am trying to call us back to like the basic fundamental principles of the Constitution. How many members of Congress do you think have read the Constitution? Well, uh, I know my, my friends None in the Freedom them? Caucus, I know they read the Constitution. Yeah. They, you know, certainly when Obama was president, they were talking about the Constitution a lot. I hope right. that they keep talking about the Constitution and we keep debating it and analyzing it because it really should be sort of the North Star for what we're doing in Congress. It's, it is an amazing document, <clears throat> you know, no matter what side of the aisle you fall. Oh, it's incredible. Because their foresight to create something that has not only survived and endured but was flexible in a way through the Bill of Rights. Yes. Uh, it is just amazing when you look at what came before. It was an act of genius. I mean, they rebelled against centuries of uh, kings and merger of church and state. And they said, we're going to separate church and state for the first time. People can believe whatever they want. They can worship however they want. The government's not going to get involved in it. How brilliant is that? And you look about what's going on around the world today, Tom, and there's religious terrorism, there's religious fanaticism, and they were writing against a background of wars between the Catholics and the Protestants in Europe that were every bit as bloody as the wars between the Sunni and the Shia today, but we've got something to teach the rest of the world, separate church and state. I want to talk about something you and I share in common. Love of Bruce Springsteen music. They're, that's the real core of our value system. As I take a sip of water from my stone pony mug, which you at home cannot see right now. Yes. Um, there has been conversation, and Bruce Springsteen himself has talked recently about the Springsteen voter, if you will, the guy who worked in a factory, the guy who got laid off at the steel mill, uh, the, the guy that really was running like a thread through a lot of Springsteen's music over the last, you know, 40 years. He had his father in mind, I think. Yeah, his father, yeah. Douglas. Yeah. Um, he's talked a lot about how that voter in the last election probably became a Trump voter. Do you agree with that idea? And how do the Democrats, I'm not saying that all Democrats need to sit down and start listening to The River on, on autoplay. I think it would help. I think <laughs> but, it would help. But is there something to that? There's I mean, something you, you to know it. his music. You yes. know. Despite the fact that Bruce, of course, was, yeah. uh, you know, big time for the Democrats and yeah. for Hillary and so on. I, I think a lot of the people that his music speaks to uh, have felt left behind by our political system. That's absolutely right. And look, the, the boss saw this decades ago, what deindustrialization meant with the factories leaving and not coming back. That's a big theme in his music in going south. And will the government stay true to the people 
who are still here even when the factories have left for Mexico or Singapore. When did you become aware of his music? How did it uh, oh, man, start I, in your, in well, your backstory? I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit uh, younger. I'm 13 years younger than yeah. the boss, so I was uh, a perfect candidate to be his fanatic fan. But he looks younger than both of us. So. <laughs> yeah, he looks great. <laughs> yeah, he works out every day. But um, the, I was in high school, and uh, I um, heard him play, and I was hooked immediately. And on my graduation day, uh, we drove a group of friends from Maryland up to Jersey to go to the Stone Pony to see if we could find him. We didn't see him, <laughs> but there were rumors that the big man was around, but at least we got to see it. And I'm checking out your uh, your coffee mug there. It's bringing back fond memories. From yeah, I didn't, time, I, so. Back when I used to be a regular at the Pony, I didn't drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you were drinking something, but it wasn't coffee. Not a lot of coffee in that. I like to say if the Stone Pony's walls could talk, I would tell them to be quiet. But uh, Springsteen, call, Springsteen calls us to you know this land of hope and dreams, like a place where we're not divided by race, we're not divided by political party and ethnicity. That uh, Americans love our country, and we think that there's something beautiful about the most multiracial, multi-ethnic land that's it, ever existed, and we make it work. In some ways, I see him as an American Yates, that he is telling the story of this country through these songs. These are not really in, in you know tomes and books and poems and things but the story of this country can be traced through these songs and, and you see it even as recently as you know uh, uh, two releases ago Wrecking Ball basically detailing the story of what you know this deindustrialization has done to a lot of small towns yes done to a lot of people yeah uh, the gig economy is referenced uh, in certain in, in certain songs as well people trying to make ends meet in in any way they can i think you know yeah. i think that you're right I, I think he does tell the story of what happened uh certainly in the 20th century and what's happened now i don't know if it goes back further than that but i think of him a lot like walt whitman uh who was america's poet who wrote the the opening to leaves of grass the united states themselves are essentially the greatest poem and i think that springsteen has evoked the poetry of our country and to to end on this you went to the springsteen on broadway show as well too i right? did indeed and there was was that the period of time where he was ending the show talking about the the women's march and and, and talking about Yes. Uh, reminding people. I think he said something along the fact that he didn't think people went to his shows to be told something, but they did go to be reminded. Of to be reminded. And he talked about the Women's March. And to me, what that, did you take from that? Well, you know, when I go to a Springsteen concert, I have the same feeling I have when I went to the Women's March, which is I see the first three words of the Constitution come alive. We the people in all of our um, splendid diversity and beauty and commitment and this is a uh, a country that is worth fighting for it's worth dying for, dying for and it's worth all of us uh investing in and so i hope we get past uh, a lot of the superficial polarization and division tom congressman jamie raskin he's a democrat from maryland in the eighth district he's a member of the house judiciary committee and a uh, part of house leadership and he was kind enough to join us on the hill this time congressman we thank you thank you for having me we thank you as well too for joining us for the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, this has been the On the Hill podcast. We thank you for this time, and we'll talk to you next time.